<laughs> You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. It's time for Digital Noise! Uh, picture Ooh. Kermit going, Ooh, Kermit arms. <laughs> flail, flail, flail. Flail, flail, flail. I'm here with Sir John. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Welcome to 2020. <laughs> the first, did, is this the first with Digital Barbara Walters. 2020 with Barbara Walters. No, there's no Barbara Wawa here. It's just me and John. And as we did in the previous year, we cover all the home releases. And we have a stack of interesting films and a few that i really genuinely enjoyed the shit out of but just a few mm. <laughs> why john mm. you go mm, like you didn't enjoy the shit out of any mm. of these it, i you know it's funny i didn't think that uh i'd forgotten what was in the queue today until i picked up the stack and i was like <laughs> okay it wasn't all bad yeah uh, but there's some ones even the bad ones are going to be fun to talk oh, about man. I suspect okay are, are you okay, ready batten, i'm ready hatches bat- batten all down right. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, I wanted to say real quick. First off, what uh, what is going on with you with the the near future comedy thing? Oh, uh, you got anything that I, you can announce? I I have uh, two movies. I have roles in two movies. One is called Doug is a Goddamn Millionaire. And <laughs> Great title. I have a small part in that, and then there's another movie called Actual Reality that's from the people who worked on. Uh, Hunky Boys Go Ding Dong for Adult Swim, as well as uh, Suplex Duplex Complex, which is also an Adult Swim. Huh. Um, but there's a movie they're working on called Actual Reality, and I have a, a much more significant part in that. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I'm doing stuff around town. Things are... Didn't you have a TV show thing you did a segment of? Um, I mean, I've done stuff. Yeah, where it was like telling a story about your life or something? Oh, that was Mortified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in December, I did Mortified, which was reading like poetry that I wrote about this girl in high school in front of a group of people. Uh, that was, that was really good. I did it three times, uh, three different shows and it went over really, really well. It went, it went really well. Yeah. I think the next appearance for me is, uh, you and I were talking about a little bit the other day, but I have like this, I don't do straight stand up. If I've ever done stand up, it's always been the context of like a character or situation. Um, I haven't quite had the confidence or the or really felt like I know what I want my voice to be for like actually writing jokes but I I've, I've written sets for characters to perform which is really weird but there's a character that I do that's like a 80s comic that's like unfrozen from time and I'm doing that again at Spider House Ballroom in the middle of uh February here in Austin uh so keep an eye on that show I think the show's called M- I think the show's called Mystery House, Okay, um, but it's not until the middle of February. So. I want to say, to be fair, a lot of the more famous stand-up comic- comics are basically just writing material for a character to perform. Yeah. You know, Emo Phillips, uh, Larry the Cable Guy, I mean, any number of them. Stephen Wright, they're not playing themselves. Did you see Emo Phillips in the early 2000s when he looked like a youth pastor? 
Uh, I didn't he see had, him like, live. Frost, frosted but... tips and like a goatee, and he dressed normal, but he still did the delivery like this. Okay, I was like, that's so weird. No one seems to know. I listed Emo Phillips as the character, but no one seems to really know how much of that is actually a put on or not with Emo Phillips. I have yet to, and I have looked to try and find a straight like footage of him. Yeah, just playing it totally straight, and I cannot find speaking it or any of, reference to. Speaking it. of Emo Phillips, he's the star of Hunky Boys Go Ding Dong. Oh well, there you go. It's him, and it's a Three Stooges. It's like a modern take on Three Stooges with him, Derek Mears, and another actor. Huh? Uh, Derek Mears? Yeah. The the guy the yes. stunt man who plays like like yeah Swamp Thing Swamp, and yeah really yeah that's a different turn for him um, but it's the three it's it's these yeah it's these three guys that are and it's very much in the vein of like Three Stooges huh you can see them they're on YouTube and stuff but it was I can only assume Emo Phillips is the Mo character yeah because my, of his haircut my friend Brian was asked a couple times by Cartoon Network to develop shows for them and and every time they would be like. Mm, uh, try again. Mm, try again. And so they did a few different things for them that Adult Swim aired, but it never, it, nothing ever went to series. Um, Until this. Uh, well, no, they, they did two Hunky Boys, and even that didn't go to series. So, huh. Yeah. Hmm. But the episodes are out there. They're oh. interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. May you, may you watch interesting Cartoon Network shows. Yes. An ancient Chinese curse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get started with our actual home releases, and we're going to start with a film that's always been on my, I want to see this, but I'm not going to rush out to see it list, Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, yeah. Partially because, well, I mean, want to see it because it was one of the first films, uh, maybe the first film, directed by Chris uh, Columbus, mm-hmm. who, of course, went on to much bigger things, uh, not the least of which was the Home Alone movies, but... Because David Keith is playing Elvis Presley, which has got to be one of the weirdest casting choices I have ever seen. Like, what a what an odd decision. What in the world led you to consider David Keith as Elvis Presley? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a... I'm not one of those guys. I'm a Beatles guy. I'm not an Elvis guy. I've always been that person. I'm like, Elvis, okay, that's great. Everybody likes him. I don't dislike him. I just don't get what all the hullabaloo is about. Uh, so that's the why I didn't rush out and see this as much. This is a story set in 1972 that deals with an actual legend. I had to look this up. Apparently, there's somebody who claimed without as many details that something like this actually happened. But uh, so Tuesday Weld, who's like at this point, she's in her probably late 40s, early 50s, and is still just gorgeous. Uh, She plays a mom who lives with her two children at a rundown boarding house. Uh, she's hurt in a car accident, ends up hospitalized due to her ne- ne'er-do-well boyfriend. Uh, so the kid wants to, the kids want to do something really nice for her. So they basically drive her pink Cadillac to Ohio during an Elvis Presley show. And this is late Presley, mind you, even though they're playing Elvis as not super fat. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> he's oh man, he's so tired of being a famous. Yeah. Ugh, oh, he can't nightmare. even get a diner cheeseburger. <laughs> uh and so they basically play a trick to get him into their car and they kidnap him and bring him back to the house saying like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to keep you here until mom gets out of the hospital. Yeah, they force him present. at gunpoint. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And of course it's not long before Elvis is like, becomes this sort of, well, I get it. Yeah, let's, let's do this thing. You kids are all right. And the kid is all kind of rebellious and a sort of, I want to be a rock and roller, but you know, it's basically 
punk. He's a little punk who's playing rock and roll. It's Charlie Schlater. It's TV's Ferris Bueller. Yeah, yes, was, it is. Uh, he was Ferris Bueller on the Ferris Bueller TV show. I totally forgot that because yeah. no one remembers the Ferris Bueller Jennifer TV Aniston show. Jennifer Aniston was the sister, I think, and Whoa. he was Ferris Bueller. Well, I mean, to me, the Ferris Bueller t- TV show was Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Like, no one was watching Ferris Bueller show. No. <laughs> but so this is like, you know, one of those kind of cutesy films. It really weirdly kind of works best when it is for me when it is getting schmaltzy and into the the feels i'm like okay that's actually not terrible the way you're pulling this off david keith who in no way resembles elvis and does not have the type of acting to pull it off is nonetheless engaging in the part i think he's acting to the height of his abilities and and so he's he's going for broke and he's giving all that he can to personify and embody elvis um, he never reads as Elvis. Some of that is just a thing of he's his this, his features it, are really angular. Everything about his face is kind of angular, and Elvis's face is not it is more rounded, curved. Especially at nineteen seventy two. Yeah, um, <laughs> and so he never reads as Elvis, but he's he's definitely you know a for effort as far as performance goes. Yeah, I mean, for a role that you definitely should have never been cast in in the first place, you give it your all. This recently got a lot of talk in the uh, Home Alone episode of Movies That Made Us. They talked about the fact that this bombed, which is what uh, sort of allowed them to go on and make Home Alone because it seemed like it was cheap. So that, that way, you know, somebody would still spend the money on him coming off of a bomb like Home Alone. I mean, coming off of a bomb like Heartbreak Hotel. Um, Heartbreak Hotel is... It's difficult to have a movie where your protagonist it the the structure of the movie is kind of funky it's difficult to have a movie where your protagonist thinks elvis is stupid and uncool but is also willing to uh kidnap elvis hold him up at gunpoint because he force him to do these things because he loves his mom um and then you know everybody teaches each other life lessons about things yeah it's the the side stuff is that's one of the biggest problems the tangential bits that are supposed to add up to a bigger whole like oh there's a girl he likes and her parents don't approve of him because he is not wealthy they don't really add up to much or feel organic or fit in there or the whole he want the kid wants to be a rock and roller but doesn't think he owes owes elvis anything or could learn anything from him is awkward and ham-fistedly leads to a scene with the elvis playing with the the kids band at the high school talent contest. There's weird things about that too. Like the fact that it's a period piece in the seventies and all of the kids read as seventies, except for the main kids who totally read as eighties, like him and his sister, him especially reads as eighties with his like denim jacket, rolled up sleeves, earring, like all that stuff reads very like eighties versus his, his buddies who wear like those seventies football type, shirts with the number on them and long, right. long hair parted in the middle. Everybody else reads 70s except for him. Um, this is just weak. It's an all-around weak movie. It's not It's not funny enough to be a comedy. It's kind of, um, again, going back to the thing of like, you you're, you have your hero hold up, like literally point a gun in Elvis's face and say, you're going to go on a date with my mom. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of fucked up. Um, and the whole movie sort of hinges on that. And, and it, kind of sets a precedence for, um, you know, people throw around the word problematic, but it kind of, it kind of makes things more problematic than they should be. If you're going to buy into this and like really 
let the story just wash over you. And it's, um, it's, we, it's lame. The movie's just lame. It's weird is the whole thing where, like, so you'd think the mom would be completely shocked, but she buys into it awfully quickly. And before you know it, although it's all off screen, she and Elvis are doing it. Yeah. Like, no question <laughs> in the film. And I'm like... This whole thing is just making decisions off screen constantly. Like Elvis just basically coming around to the idea is kind of like, okay, well, don't worry about it. He comes around to the idea. It's fine. Yeah. I, th- there's a lot th- th- that is trying to be sort of like this magical fantasy thing, like, and it never sells you on that. It just feels like a film with scene missing throughout it. Yeah. You know, like the there's a like the stuff in the diner. And like the lighting kind of changes, and there's yeah. like sort of a semi dance number, and it's sort of like yeah, it's a magical realism moment. Yeah, that but it doesn't in a film without any other magical yeah, realism. Yeah, it's still moments. so anchored to reality. But I say that and it's like it's not even real. I don't know what it is. It never it never soars. It never that kind of magic. Or I think the beginning even opens with a title card that says like this is a fable or whatever, and it's just. Everything is kind of mundane and watered down. It's not really funny. It's not particularly romantic. I'd say it's for, like, you know, your 10-year-old kid has discovered they like Elvis. I don't know how often that happens anymore. Uh, And show him this movie. Except, no, because it's too boring to show a 10-year-old kid. And it's too stupid to show a grown-up. So I don't know who this movie is for. But I do love... uh, Roger Ebert gave it a one-star review, but I love this quote from it. Here it is, the goofiest movie of the year. A movie so bad in so many different and endearing ways that I'm damned if I don't feel genuine affection for it. <laughs> and I think that's actually kind of accurate. Yeah. I was like, at the end, I was like, you tried so hard and you failed miserably, but you definitely tried. And I got to give you points for that. Uh, there's only an audio commentary here by entertainment journalist and author Brian Raisman. Um, that thing's weird. Reisman. Did you listen to the commentary? I was like, why is there why is there commentary by a film critic or historian or entertainment writer or whatever? I was like, why isn't it any cast or crew or anything like that? And it's a very dry academic track about Heartbreak Hotel, which is a bizarre special feature to have with Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah. Um, very, very weird. Uh, so our next film is Automation. Uh, now, we recently had, in fact, our last show together, we gave our pick of the week to a film by Epic Releasing uh, and Dread. The Fair. The Fair, which is people. is quite good. Uh, this time, this probably gets our, their release gets our worst of the week, I suspect. Uh, not uh, mine. No, you go. Oh, no, that's right. I forgot what yours not is. Mine. I actually will. I'll explain my reasoning later why that other film is not my worst of the week. Okay. Although it's certainly not. But automation is still certainly not good. Uh, The premise here is there's this auto mechanic building facility. Uh, They have a robot that works there that has AI and it's kind of clunky looking and it it, it talks, you know, it walks around like Robbie the robot and is like, hey, how can I help you? What is wrong? I'm trying to understand humans. Why do you cry? It's a guy in in an okay like cosplay robot costume. So he kind of forms a weird sort of friendship with an employee played by Alyssa Dowling, who uh, is kind of a stalwart of sort of films made at this level. Yeah. You know, has been in lots of movies over her career that 
were never much bigger than this, but was often the star of them. And I think he's a musician as well. But she's a like a temp employee who's been temp for a long time, who does sort of like like the last to leave type employee who's sitting and working with com- computers, basically. Uh, and she more or less, you know, forms as much as you can with a non, with a semi-sentient ro- robot, a friendship. Of course, something goes on and there's new robots that are being brought in to replace this robot by the, the, the company that are better, faster, stronger, what have you. The robot ends up uh, becoming truly sentient and decides to start killing everyone in the company for reasons that are reasons and and that's the movie basically uh, coming down to this character he's friends with having to be the one to figure out how to solve the situation as the robot is like but no you're the one that I, is my friend i must protect you it's a mess since it takes place at christmas time will this be entering your your christmas rotation it, every holiday it season it w- will <laughs> not it did occur to me early on i was like ooh i hope this is good this can add to my christmas horror movie list but no uh, tone of this is kind of all over the place, ain't it? Yeah. Um, uh, it felt like they wanted, and this is, I'm stealing from another critic, but saying it felt like someone said, what if we mix Chopping Mall and Office Space together into one movie? And yeah. it's like, because that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. And sure enough, it doesn't work here. The comedy's not funny. In fact, it's like, I literally, I think I hallucinated, but I felt like at points after people delivered a joke and waited for a laugh moment, you could hear crickets chirp. You know, it was just that kind of not funny. The only engaging person here at all is Alyssa Dowling. And she doesn't really, I mean, the dialogue they've given her is terrible. She's doing the best she can with it. But you can see why she's also an actress who's been kind of at this level of filmmaking for a long time. I There's a flashback sequence about the about the robot and how it got its start before it was working in an office that is quite frankly, very unnecessary. Shouldn't even be in there. I mean, it's not a long movie, but that made, made it feel even longer. I just, I'm just not a fan. I think that was to keep you watching. I think that those little bits, because you don't know what they are or what they mean for a while, and I think it was to keep you going like, oh, is this going to get like, are we going to get more of this hard sci-fi interplanetary stuff, or is it all going to be like office-based stuff? Right. I think it was like kind of teasing you uh, to sort of keep watching. Because um, there is a, quite a while before the robot goes wacky and anything horror happens. It's yeah. just trying to play with the really badly written office comedy stuff. Yeah, this is like any other DIY horror or sci-fi. It's You, you realize, you know, your, your performances are all going to be different across the board because uh, you're probably... I don't... You've got, you probably have professional actors and amateur actors, and you have a director who may not be bringing the amateurs up to the level of the professionals. And so you have like all this mix of everything. You have a mix of tones, you have a mix of acting, you have a, a, a story that isn't um, original. It, it's not original. It feels like, uh, it feels like it needed feedback. Like if someone gave me this as a script, and was like, what do you think? I think it's like a year away and several read-throughs from being refined into whatever it needed to be. Yeah. It's 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 weak, low-budget, no-budget sci-fi horror filmmaking. Yeah, uh, thoroughly forgettable. I had to go back and, and read several reviews just to refresh myself on the plot because it had been a, two weeks since I'd seen it. And I was like, wait, what was that about? Because it's just one of those movies. you know. I mean, it's not even up to a... 
90s sci-fi channel original movie level of entertaining. Oh, no, no, no. This is this is very... I mean, we've talked about stuff like this before. It's very no budget. And yet, the Blu-ray is absolutely packed with extra of features. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Two different commentary tracks, four minutes of deleted scenes, two and a half minutes of alternate takes, five and a half minutes of, of bloopers, a 30-minute behind-the-scenes... Uh, uh, Twelve and a half minutes of writing the screenplay, uh, nine minutes of building Otto with Evil Ted, which talks about creating the the robot. Uh, Otto's voice, which is the name of the robot once again. Uh, Eleven minute long interview with the actor, uh, a series of interviews with pretty much everybody, and the trailer. I mean, man, that's a lot of stuff to put onto a movie that somebody had to have told them at some point. Guys, just count your blessings that you even got a release for this. It's a guy movie. in a robot costume too. That's not like skilled enough at movement to be a robot robot and so it made me go why didn't they just have him walk and move like a normal person because instead you get this thing of going oh that guy's not really doing a great job at acting like a robot so it's sort of then why not just go hey this robot thing ain't working because you're not like a a mime like a professional mime and you're not able to sell the, the joint movement so why not just walk normal Right. Be normal. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But it's... Uh, it's it's awkward on multiple levels, and that was the first thing you noticed. I will awkward. say that there are people that... This actually was on my radar before you gave it to me to watch. No shit. So I will say that there are people who like it. It does have its fans. Wow. Um, yeah, so it maybe you know, even though neither of us cared for it, there may be people that... Would all movies unlike other stuff? But- you know, everything is just about opinion, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm I more than once I've absolutely despised something only to turn around and find that I'm in the minority, and vice versa. Yeah, usually multiple times in the same year. <laughs> I'm the one guy who is like, seriously, guys, Jennifer Hudson for best best actress and Adam Sandler for best actor. Did you watch those movies? I'm the guy going, I call bullshit. Oh, you didn't like Sandler and Uncut Gems? I think he's fine. But he's just playing. Uh, he's just playing a character that he that's very similar to other characters he played, just without jokes written into it. Yeah, there's no point of that. I was like, wow, what a stretch for Sandler. I was like, okay, that character perfectly fits this the way this character is written, which I can only assume was written for him. But I didn't find it a tremendous performance. Hmm. And and uh, uh, I said Jennifer Hudson. I think I meant Jennifer Lopez and Hudson. Oh, yeah. so I was like, she's fine. Did we, are we all just wanting to give her awards because we're just amazed that Jennifer Lopez gave a good performance? <laughs> it felt like that. I was that like, one I didn't see. I didn't, certainly I never doesn't qualify as best of the year. And the Academy apparently agreed with me, although they were wrong about so many other things this year. Anyway, let's go on to what is John's least favorite movie of the stack, which is Famine. Oi. This is a re-release uh, on Blu-ray of a 2011 film, a super low-budget slasher comedy with definitely it being an absurdist comedy, it's attempting to kind of be a satire of slasher films, but never succeeds. It feels like somebody was really in love with trauma movies and wanted to make their own trauma film, but yeah. didn't really know how to do it. Because trauma, is, whether you love it or hate it, has a very distinctive flavor that crosses all their films of their style of weirdness and gore and comedy. And this is its own thing that just like you said about automation, felt like it needed several more passes. Well, I think the thing with trauma is that the people are aware of what they're in. 
Mm-hmm. They know they know what they're making, and everybody kind of works towards a particular tone for trauma. This is different in that there are people who I think feel like they're in a serious horror film, people who feel like they're in a real film, movie movie, other people who think it's a comedy, other people who are acting dramatic but can't help but perform comedically. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds, and nobody's on the same page. Uh, this is a about a the details of the actual famine itself seem to elude me. Now there's a school is having a lock-in, yeah. but they call the lock-in a famine because they don't eat during the lock-in. Right, it's supposed to be to honor people who can't eat, I okay. guess. Okay. Who are starving. Yeah. And this is like year 2 of the famine, which is just which is just a school lock-in, but I guess it gives the movie a cool title. And then there's a guy, there's a killer that's wearing the school mascot, which is like a lumberjack. Right. And he, and the the lumberjack's like going around killing people. Um, this movie, <laughs> this movie was so much of everything that I hate to see in movies. Okay. That I, I'd never seen something so calculated to bother me annoy me, <laughs> irritate me, piss me off. <laughs> it's so gross and crass. The, all these high schoolers all look like they're in their early 30s. Um, none of them actually yeah. behave like high schoolers. Uh, it's This movie is, is irritating. Um, the only upside is that the gore works. Yeah, that's. I was going to say the one thing that elevates this about automation for me is that the gore's not bad. The gore's actually, at points, pretty impressive. But it's clear that's the only thing they put money into in making yeah. this film. I used to listen to a podcast called uh, Night of the Living Podcast, and mm. they had a beef with this director Ryan Nicholson because they gave his movie Gutter Balls a bad review. And so who, when who, I, by the way, died earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, I saw the cover and I was like, "Oh, a Ryan Nicholson film." I was like, "I never saw Gutterballs, but I remember the name from the the beef between the podcast and the director." And uh, and so I was <laughs> like, "All right, here goes." And yeah, a few minutes in, it made my girlfriend really angry. Um, she was mad. It, it extended beyond the film into onto you. And was like, well, she's why does Chris send you these movies to watch? Why does he give this to you? Why doesn't he just tell people no? Why doesn't he just say, why doesn't <laughs> he, he just apologize? Why doesn't he only. just keep it for himself or just like tell the company like we're not reviewing that one? Why does he give it to you to watch? And I was like, <laughs> I said, Wendy, I guarantee you I hate this more than you do. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this was awful. This was awful. Awful. You know what's the worst in my and I think I've been doing digital noise now for like two years. Yeah. This is the worst movie I that I've that I've reviewed the whole time I've been doing digital noise. I hated almost every second of this movie. Okay. It is it's just it's everything I don't like in movies. It does so many weird things that don't make sense. Like the lead character, arguably this actress Beth Cantor, who I was looking up and actually has moved. She's the one that just kept shouting lines for no yeah, reason. Yeah, she's moved on from acting into being a female bodybuilder for okay. some reason. That's like her whole thing now. But uh, she is supposed to be at first when you meet her this klutzy but sweet girl who's hot. But I mean, she's ridiculously hot. But everyone is like 
treating her like she's the nerdiest person on earth until suddenly they're not for no story reason. It's just like, okay. Mm. And then, yeah, she like sometimes randomly flies into a rage and starts screaming at people that makes no sense and has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I mean, everyone in this film is distasteful as a character has things about them that don't make sense. And, Everybody hates each other. Everybody too. hates each other. It's just the whole thing is just ugly and has an ugly, distasteful feel about it. And weirdly, despite the thing is just drowning in like lasciviousness. Yeah. You know, constantly shots like of girls bending over and up upskirt and like there's no actual nudity in it, which is weird for a film like this, where you're like, look, man, pick a lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to make here? I mean, clearly with the gore, this thing is not going to be playing on television, the degree of gore, and it gets pretty damn gory. So was there a reason you didn't decide to just go full on red box and, and, and shove it full of nudity or did they not make the cut? I'm like very confused watching this, who this movie is supposed to be for. Oh, I would, I would have to think that they were, that the actresses were like, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's all right. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the shirt on if that's okay. I mean, they had to read the script and gone. Well, obviously I'm supposed to get naked for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the script, uh, there's nothing real you hear with extras. It's just stills gallery. But, man, I agree with you in the sense, like, avoid at all costs. It is not good. Mm-mm. It will it will make you feel sad to be a human. Uh, yeah. I, that, yeah. I hope, I, I hope it's a while. I hope it's another two years before anything supersedes it. Well, let's move on to Old Joy. This is a Criterion release. And I'll be honest, John, <laughs> like this was one of those months with Criterion where nothing that they had to offer interested me in the faintest. The only reason I asked for this movie was because Yo Latengo, who's one of my favorite bands of all time, did the score to this. And I actually have the soundtrack for that, which was called They Shoot, They We Score, which is a decent score. The reason I wasn't interested is because this is by Kelly Reichardt, who is definitely a director... A, a, a critical, uh, like art, arty indie yeah. spirit awards type director who does really minimalist small films, and I have disliked everything I've ever seen Meek's by her. Meek's cutoff was probably her breakthrough hit, and I hit. hated it so much. I'm really curious as to what you thought of Old Joy. I hated it so much. <laughs> so Old Joy is about a guy who settled into adult life, and he's going to get married. He is married, and he's going about to have a kid. And he has a friend who's kind of um, not as rich, not as uh, not. I wouldn't say rich, but basically broke, um, and hasn't settled down, and is still living kind of a young man's life, and is sort of a drifter. And the two friends decide to go on a camping trip, and that's basically that's, the plot. That's the movie, and, and there's your movie. Literally, nothing happens. Oh, uh, <laughs> it is if you like films where. Um, you know, they capture like rain dripping yeah. or there's a scene where they put up a tent and there's almost no dialogue, but you get to watch them put the whole tent up. Yeah. Um, this is your movie. And you know, it'd be one thing if this thing was written with dialogue that was engaging or we felt really told us something interesting about these characters. It's about what they're not saying, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to read between the lines. I mean, they're, it's not like either one of them is an unpleasant person they're just barely defined. And this is a movie with largely just two characters in it mm-hmm. who spend all their time together talking 
about nothing. And I'll say, like, I'm gonna, I, I'm, I'm gonna lose my art house cred here. I'm gonna say the characters honestly are really one dimensional. Yeah. For it to be like, I'm family man. I'm street hustler. It's sort of like, and then that's that's it. Like that's it. And we're never given any other layers beyond that as to who these people are, what they are, what what compels them, motivates them, what their interests are. It's literally just statuses. It's I'm of a higher status. I'm of a lower status. Let's right. go camping credits. I mean, this is the kind of film that makes me mad because it like the New York Times called it one of the best films of the year. It's 84 out of 100 on Metacritic. It uh, was on quite a few critics' top 10 lists of the best films of 2006 when it came out. It won awards from a bunch of film festivals. What am I missing here? Nothing but nothing but four and five stars on Letterboxd, too. I yeah. checked that out, too. I'm like, what am, I, what am I not seeing? What are you guys seeing in this movie that I'm not seeing? Because I'm like, I don't get it. What about what did you like about this movie? I other than the score, which is definitely very understated, Yola Tango, as they are sometimes. There's nothing here. There's no substance to this. This is like I don't get it. And, you know, and Criterion putting it out. I'm like, arg. <laughs> it just I I get. I don't understand why I don't why what everyone sees in this director and her films. Also, Wendy and Lucy, another one that everyone was raving about, saw it went. I don't get it. What does everybody like so much about this film? Uh, that's where the girl, the Michelle Williams has a dog. Yeah. That's like the movie, right? Yeah. That's the whole That's movie. pretty much the movie. Yeah. Michelle Williams has a dog should have been the name <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> I don't get it. What am I not saying that you guys like? Because this is so fucking boring. I watched the features on this trying to crack the code a little. Uh-huh. And the features were just very much like, <laughs> very much about like, um, little things about the making of the movie. Yeah. Not really like deeper into the movie, but just sort of like, Oh, we were shooting down by blah, blah, blah. Lake. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that morning. It was really cold. Yeah. And we went to <laughs> such and such river and we shot the rest. Yeah. I remember that. And the dog seemed to really take a liking to you. Yeah, he did. And I was like, what? Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what insight about like, uh, I, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid to just like, just let this one go. I'll let the art house nerds have it, but yeah, the, y'all can keep it. It's just, I felt like I had to like put in something like completely different. I think I watched like evil dead two right after this, where I was just like, I, I like stroking my blu-ray player. It's okay. I promise I won't do that to you again. It was short. It, it is mercifully short. Uh, <laughs> there's about an hour and 15 minutes of bonus features on here from, you know, Criterion always has a certain degree of that. And like you said, they're just interviews of people sort of beating around the bush. And there's a 42 page illustrated booklet. Um, I don't, I, I didn't look at the booklet. Yeah. I'm, 42 I'm, pages. I'm just not a fan. I, how can you write 42 pages about this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, anyway, next up is The Limits of Control, which is one of the few, if not the only, narrative film by Jim Jarmusch I had yet to see. And I'm a big fan of Jarmusch's style of yeah. house. And I get it when someone tells me I don't get Jarmusch. I didn't get 100%, this one. 100%, 100% understand. I'm with you on this one. There's okay. a reason why this one did not come in front of my radar before yeah. now. This older one, 2009, is because it's not very good. Uh, it's and it it definitely is in the middle of that thing that Jarmusch does and has been doing for a while now where he wants to take a genre of film and do put the Jarmusch stamp on it you know like he just did a zombie film and he's done a samurai film samurai slash professional assassin he's done a western and this is his spy movie Uh uh-huh and 
yeah, it it's it's the most meandery, even for Jarmouche, who can be very meandery. This is meandery to the point where I was like, what the fuck was this about? It took the second time he met with somebody where I was like, oh, this is going to be this the whole time, isn't it? He's going to go to some location. He's going to meet some character actor. They're going to have a conversation that doesn't really mean anything. And then that's going to be seen. And he's going to do the same thing with somebody else. Yeah. What a waste of the audience's time. <laughs> what a waste of the locations and the actors that he has on hand. Yeah, a rare like Jarmusch. Tilda Swinton, John Hurt, Bill Murray. like Yeah, Gail Garcia these... Bernal, yeah. Paz de la Huerta. I mean, uh, and even the lead actor, Isaac D. Bencole, who is a, a regular. He's mm. been in like seven or something Jarmusch films, who's great usually. Has just been ordered, seemed to be like, just be blank. Yeah. You're just blank the whole yeah. film. And it's a, it's also weird because Dramush makes most of his films in America with a very uh, sort of about the American experience feel. And this is taking place in Europe. And okay. I don't, was it just he just wanted a vacation? Um, and the story with Isaac, uh, with who's just credited as Lone Man, who's clearly some kind of spy. Uh, and he goes from place to place where he exchanges matchbooks with people and appears maybe diamonds are involved on some level at one point. And there's codes that he memorizes and then chews up. He just meets all these various people. And the one thing that any of them have in common, other than the exchange of a matchbook, is they all ask him, you don't speak Spanish, right? At one point. And I'm not sure what the relevancy there is. Um and the weird, the weirdest thing, the most awkward is Paz de la Huerta, who is constantly naked throughout this movie. But it is Paz yeah. de la Huerta who is generally that. In a, if she's in a movie, you know that's probably going to be an element of yes. it. Uh, who is supposed to be like the equivalent of a Bond girl, I guess, in this. But she like shows up and lazes around naked and goes, why won't you have sex with me? And he goes, I'd never have sex when I'm on a mission or whatever. And that's all there is to that, basically. I don't know. I don't know what even at the end of this movie. I'm like, what happened in that movie? I, like, I didn't hate it. There's scenes that I like, like Tilda Swinton has a really nice part in this and it's way too short. And you're like, why don't we get more Tilda Swinton in this movie? Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you. It's it's um, I usually really glom on to what Jarmusch does, at least in terms of he all his films have a faintly dreamlike quality to various varying extents. And even his most dreamlike movies like Dead Man you it feels organic this nothing does it all just felt like a series of ideas that just never gelled together into one like a sense of being one film yeah yeah the spy stuff is really just a skeletal framework to hang these different conversations on one Mm -hmm. is about like oh, do you like movies here's why i like movies one is like oh do you like music here's why i like music Mm -hmm. and there are these little conversations that take place once every 15, 20 minutes as he arrives at a place, walks around, gets his hotel room, walks to the cafe, orders his two espressos, sits and waits. Character actor shows up, they have the conversation. Character actor leaves then start again. Goes to his new location, wanders around, books his hotel room, gets his coffee. It's very repetitive and just... You know how difficult it is to make movies, and it's like, I don't know why, like, I it just feels like an utter waste of time, talent, locations, 
it's shot well. Uh, it just feels like in this, but in the service of what? Yeah. And, and this is one of the few Jarmusch films that was roundly given a meh critically when it came out, I yeah. mean, which is why I, I barely even heard of it, even though it's right smack in the middle of a very productive and good period for Jarmusch. It's just a deeply forgettable movie. Um, Arrow Academy, for some reason, Arrow's putting this under their Academy label, which is usually their sort of like goes for much older classic films or like, you know, not the classic of classics, but, you know, sidelines. Like they do a lot of noirs, old noirs with that. For some reason, they put this on Arrow Academy. Um, there is a 34 and a half minute, uh, 34, yeah, 34 and a half minute in American Europe, which is the only thing worth really picking this up for, which is a nice analysis of Jarmusch's career looking at like a lot of his stylistic tricks that he uses in his whole movies and sort of recognizing a lot of his tics and the things that he likes to do that is interesting and instructive. Uh, there's the rituals of control, which is 16 and a half minute video essay, uh, which gets into a lot of his regular tropes. Also rather interesting uh, behind Jim Jarmusch, a 51 minute archival documentary on the making of this film, uh, untitled landscapes, which is another archival piece looking at the locations and an insert booklet. Uh, but you know, it's weird for me to not, because last Jarmusch we reviewed was another older one, doesn't it? The only other one I had in narrative film I hadn't seen yet, Broken Flowers. And I thought that was great. Really liked it. I was so disappointed to not, you know, this be a hidden gem that I was like, oh man. Yeah. Why didn't I see this before now? Well, because almost no one did. Well, let's move into our final two films, both of which are the only two films I think we both enjoyed of the stack. First off, we're going to talk about Blue Collar. Oh, yeah. Blue Collar is one of those movies I've always avoided because even though it stars the great Richard Pryor, it was always listed, well, it's not really a comedy. It's Pryor trying to do drama. And it definitely, audiences weren't crazy about it. Critics lost their mind for this when it came out. Like, this is amazing. It got zero traction because it's Pryor headlining a film that mm. isn't a comedy. It's got comedic aspects to it, but yeah. ultimately not a comedy. This is, I saw one critic saying about the this recent release, re-release of this, that this is the most timely for now older film to watch. Like, if you watch this now, you're like, holy shit, this thing was like so prescient on so many levels. And it is like the most incredible takedown of the problem of the economic system in America. And, you know, the fights between corruption and unions and, 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 uh, Companies doing illicit actions and employees being forced, people being forced to do the stuff they don't want to do because they have no choice. They're put economically in that position and they're backed into a corner. Um, it's written by Paul Schrader and the first film directed by Paul Schrader, of course, went on to who also wrote, co-wrote Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ and Bringing Out the Dead, amongst others, and went on to have a huge directorial career with mixed results. But just recently, although everybody else liked it, I wasn't crazy about it. Oh, first Reformed was his last yeah. film, I believe. But uh, this has Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel and Yafet Kodo. Man, Yafet Kodo is just never in enough stuff for me. He's so great. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Sorry. Um, they work in Detroit as auto workers. Uh, they're the, the bosses are dicks, especially Richard Pryor is just tired of it and getting in the face of everybody around there. Uh, there's loan sharks involved. Uh, they all find themselves in situations where they desperately need more money and they don't know what to do. So they decide that they're going to rob the safe at the union headquarters. And, it ends up with a sort of situation where there's nothing in there, but they find a book that's filled with names and uh, basically shows that they're in the unions involved with the mob and is making like 
illicit, but it's not as simple as that decisions with their money, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, there, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about this thing this year, in particular with the Irishman. But, uh, I mean, this was a thing where it was like, well, they're not really ripping off the employees per se. I mean, the idea is they're making more money for the union, but they're doing it in a completely illegal fashion. And the way all that plays out is not at all what I have, where I would have expected this movie to go. It goes a very different direction and ends up being sort of about how anybody in power sets people who are not in power against each other. And I found this really fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. Yeah, it's really good. And Pryor's good as well in a dramatic role. Yeah. Um, there was apparently a lot of infighting uh, related to this because Yafet and Pryor and Keitel were all told individually, and I don't know if Schrader did this on purpose, but had told individually all three of them that they were the star of the movie, okay. which caused them to all sort of hate each other on set because they all thought that each other were trying to upstage the other one. Hmm. Um, and it was nothing but friction. Uh, there was a, a pretty infamous incident in the scene where there's the big party where they're all doing coke and sleeping around and all that. It's kind of early in the film, maybe about 30 minutes in. There was an incident where I think Pryor was was high. They were doing real coke on set and Pryor ended up pulling a gun on Schrader. Um, that was like, it was apparently a nightmare set, but the results are really, really good. Yeah. Um, it's a very gritty, uh, very blue collar uh, <laughs> movie. Um, and feels like a hidden gem of the seventies that hasn't been, you know, turned over and discussed to death like some other movies of the 70s. Not gotten its proper due. Yeah, I don't think it has gotten its proper due. And I'm not sure if that's a box office thing where because it was tied so heavily to Pryor's career as a star and since it wasn't what people wanted from that, I don't know if that has sort of deep-sixed whatever uh, word-of-mouth audience there would have been for a film like this. Because it was one that, like, I don't think that I had really... I don't think I had heard of it I'm, if I had heard of it, it had been not something that was on my radar in any significant way before. Yeah. People this just don't release. discuss it. I was aware it existed. Yeah, I just like one of those. Like I just remember going, "Oh well, it's not a comedy." So yeah, uh, and a lot of times when you see comedians try their hand at drama and then never go back to it again, it's not the strongest of of efforts. But I mean, when you look and see how this was reacted to by critics, it was extremely loved by them when it came out. Uh, even now, Spike Lee called it one of the essential films for any filmmaker to see. Uh, Bruce Springsteen calls this one of his favorite movies uh, ever. Uh, Cisco and Ebert gave this one of their best of the whole year when it came out. It's, it's thoroughly engaging. It's constantly has this level of slow simmering anger mm. that just ex starts to explode that, that can't help but remind you of some of the best films of the seventies that are definitely often about like the economic divide and, and, the, and crime. Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe you're right. Maybe it is just that expectation of prior being something that he's not. And they definitely wrote some comedy stuff for him in here, but all of it is done in a way that it is, organic to the character as opposed to feeling like a sketch or a bit, you know? Yeah. And I think maybe that's what took people out of it. I don't know, but highly recommend this. And this is definitely my pick of the week. Oh yeah. It's my pick of the week too. Uh, um, this is a, this is a film worth owning and a film worth 
revisiting every couple of years. Yeah. Uh, Kino Lober put this out. There's only extra really is a commentary track, which is archival with Paul Schrader and a critic talking I, about this. I will say I tried listening to that. Um, Schrader is very loose and liberal with the N word. Uh, ah. It flows from his mouth very easily. That's uncomfortable. Um, which uh, my girlfriend was is it was black. <laughs> she was black the last time I saw her. Um, I'm going to presume she's still black yes. at this point. Uh, and she she was like not digging the fact that he was so uh, like so easy. That was part of his vocabulary, right? So to speak. That's not cool. Um. So yeah. And so, this is an archival commentary for the record. Yeah. I doubt if he had recorded it recently that that would be the case. I don't know, but we listened to a little bit of it, and it was like, okay, well, all right. He's just, he's not even going to, okay. Um, hmm. so Just enough for you to realize, I better turn this off. Yeah. That's fair. Well, our last film this week is another re-release by Kino Lober, which is Iceman. Now, this is the movie I saw when I was a kid, and I remember really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. But you know how it is with films that you haven't seen since you were a kid, and you're like, I wonder if it still holds up. Uh, I am glad to report that I think overall Iceman does in fact still hold up as a solid little, it's weirdly described as an action adventure, which I don't see at all, but yeah. uh, maybe the last 10 minutes, but yeah. it's more of a sort of like perspective science reflection on humanity type science fiction film. And it follows some of the, uh, it follows like tropes of the boy and his dog films too. It yeah. follows some of those kind of tropes. Absolutely. Where, Hey, like, you know, if if Timothy Hutton's the boy and Iceman's the dog, it's like, hey, you got to let that dog go. You know, that sort of like those movies where a kid befriends a wild animal that, be, you know, as a baby and then the thing becomes feral or like Old Yeller or whatever. Right. It's just like, it's very much like a boy and his dog movie. But By with, the way, directed by somebody, we just did a, another movie by uh, yeah. uh, Fred Schlepsey, Australian guy who did The yep. Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, mm -hmm. which we both enjoyed. I was surprised at how much of this I actually remembered. I hadn't seen it since cable, you know, early eighties, mid eighties cable. And I, there, there was not any of it that I didn't really remember. Right. Like everything had kind of burned itself into my mind. And I didn't realize that at all until I was watching it. It was like, there were no scenes where I was like, I don't remember that. Everything was like, yeah. Yeah. yeah you're always yeah. like, Oh, I remember what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. Because like we did, it was, a, it was kind of, a, I think an HBO staple at one point yeah. early on. Uh, so watched it back then. But yeah, it's, um, I mean, if you're expecting an action adventure, that's not, once again, that's not what you're getting. It's Timothy Hutton, who's one of a group of uh, explorers at an Arctic base, scientists in Arctic base, where they have discovered a body of a prehistoric man who's been frozen. Uh, and so they bring him in because I can't remember what his specialty is. He's uh, an anthropologist. anthropologist. The weird thing about the movie to me that I had the most questions about is that they all work for an oil and gas company. Right. And they don't spell out very well why an oil and gas company would have a terrarium built for bears. Yeah. Uh, like, there's a lot of things that, because they spell out that it's an oil and gas company, actually raises more questions than it would have if they would have said, oh, we're a wildlife research firm or it's something true. like that. But ultimately, I think it's it's kind of irrelevant because yeah. the focus is not on the evils of the company or something like that. I mean, it is important in the sense that, well, why are they spending all this time and money on this 
caveman that they unfroze and surprisingly came back to life. Mm-hmm. What's well, cause you shouldn't be able to come back to life if you've been frozen. Ice crystals, which I was, you know, right off the bat, I'm like, wow, this film actually knows its science. It's like, yeah, ice crystals would form in your blood and destroy all your organs, uh, which is the biggest problem with cryogenic freezing and why they're like, we can freeze you. We're just not sure if we can ever bring you back. That addresses this and said, wow, there's something in this guy's blood that made ice crystals not form. And we need to figure out what it is, because if so, that's going to be the billion dollar, like, yeah, I mean, that's a whole new, <laughs> like, uh, uh, field of medical venture that will make money for now till the end of time. If we can figure out how to duplicate that, we're talking about being able to freeze people successfully. And, and then that opens up the, the movie's big scientific dilemma, which is, is this a man with his own independence or is this a scientific asset? Right. And Timothy Hutton, obviously, being more on the side of this is a man with his own, yeah. <laughs> you know. And most of the movie, when it's most when it's most engaging, is Timothy Hutton engaging with this caveman and them trying to learn how to understand each other. Uh, the caveman does not speak English, but he does have a rudimentary language of Eton. his own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and it is fascinating to watch play out. It's very entertaining to watch play out. I felt like this is one of those ideas that when people are looking for things to adapt into television series, I'm like, this is actually a great idea for a TV series to see where would this go? Because when the movie decides to go to, well, we got to wrap this up. It's very sudden and very sort of like, well, okay, I guess you had to figure out a way to end this. Yeah. You know, Uh, I mean, it's not like stupid. It's just like disappointing, maybe like, okay. I mean, it fits in with the themes, but I wanted it to go on. I wanted to learn more about it and see yeah. where this was going to go. And it's just, it feels uh, truncated too early, at a, even at 100 minutes. But what do you think? I really liked it. This is a, you know, this, I would say, almost almost ties to Pick of the Week. I think Blue Collar is a better movie, but I think Iceman deserves an audience as well that hasn't, that sort of let it go. I think it's kind of, become like a 80s relic and it's not talked about and people don't remember it. It's like a, it feels at times like John Carpenter's The Thing, except it's not horror. Mm -hmm. But that sort of Arctic remoteness, you know, you get to know the little team, which is like Danny Glover and um, who's the uh, older guy? Uh, oh, um, uh, David, is it David Strathairn? Uh, David Strathairn's in it as well. Um, uh, there's John Lone. John Lone who, who plays, plays the Iceman. The Iceman, yeah. who's, who's done a lot of parts like that, actually, uh, in his career. But he's best known for being the last emperor. Um, Joseph Summer, Philip Aiken. I don't know, Danny Glover's in this, too. Yeah. A small role. There's the old guy who gets... Uh... <laughs> I can't remember who the old guy is. That's okay. That's all right. Um, James yeah. Tolkien. Yeah, that's who it is. That's who the old guy is. James <laughs> Tolkien from Back to the Future. Oh yeah, yeah. He's Gun. the he's yeah. the, the the school principal. Yeah. Um, he was good in it. It's it's a nice little sci-fi film uh, with really strong performances in it. It's almost always compelling. It's photographed well. It feels like a big studio film from the eighties, which it was. I was fascinated by and tried to find information on the enclosure, mm-hmm. uh, and I couldn't find anything of about like it where online. that was. It has to be a set, like, and I wanted to read about the building of that set because if that if that is one hundred percent a set, it's a really impressive set um, because it's multi-story. It has the dome on top where it's like the glass, the outside, 
It's got the weird little office enclosure that sticks out. And then it's got that terrar- all that terrarium stuff in there. And I was like, that's got to be a really expensive set. And I couldn't find out any information about the actual like terrarium enclosure thing that they keep the Iceman in. So you didn't listen um, to one of the two audio commentary tracks? I went to the out? audio commentary track and I went to the scene to, to hear if they would talk about it during the introduction of the terrarium Yeah, and they didn't. So I didn't listen to the whole... There are two commentaries. I didn't listen to the... I didn't listen to... Uh, I listened to both of them in context of where I thought they might talk about those in the movie and right. didn't hear them talk about them at either time. That's fair. They so, may have later. But... And they may have later. They may have beforehand. They may have started off like this was originally filmed in Vancouver and they <laughs> built a $1,200, you know, a 1,200 square foot or whatever. I don't know. Right. It is a very impressive set. No yeah. question. Uh, well, th- I think that's about it for our digital noise this week. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. We covered them all. We. Well, well, now what? Uh, I don't know. I guess we just go about our daily lives. Huh. Oh, wait. No, here's another stack of movies for the next Digital Noise. Oh, <laughs> Famine 2. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs>